Hello everyone and welcome back. It's the BMW Blog Podcast and this is episode 10. It's our 10th episode, yay! Uh, I know 10 episodes is barely a milestone. Um, You know, that's not even a drop in the bucket for some bigger podcasts, even automotive podcasts. But uh, it's our 10th, so it's a bit of a milestone for us. We're happy about it and excited. We're also excited that it seems to be getting a good positive reaction. You know, you guys seem to like it a lot. Uh, We get quite a lot of comments and emails and stuff like that, you know, just generally thanking us for doing the podcast, and we thank you for listening. So, you know, we're excited that it's 10 episodes and that we're actually making something that people (laughs) like listening to, because, you know, we never did a podcast before, so venturing into unknown waters a little bit, and it's always kind of nerve-wracking when you don't know what the audience is going to be like or what they're going to expect or or what we expect, you know. So it's, it's really nice to hit 10 episodes and, you know, get some good positive feedback on it we're really excited so we appreciate you listening um and you know it's only going to get better from here we're going to have more guests and some more interesting stuff you know down the road you know like live stuff from auto shows or or anything so we have some more cool stuff on the way unfortunately we couldn't secure a guest for this week i promised you guys there would be a guest for the 10th episode and we really really tried but just we couldn't get a hold of people at the right times and you know scheduling wise it just really didn't work out so unfortunately, we don't have a guest, but we are working on guests, I promise. Um, but yeah, so today we have a good episode. I want to talk to you about a few interesting things that happened this week. Um, I want to talk about some of the comments from Chris Harris. Uh, that got quite a bit of traction earlier this week. Um, also, I want to talk about the excuse me, the Gordon Murray uh, GMA T50. That is Gordon Murray's successor to the McLaren F1, and that resonates really well with BMW fans because of, you know, how amazing the F1 is and how that used to be BMW engine. So BMW fans love the F1. They love Gordon Murray. So his new car uh, is really, really special. And then I want to talk about the Mini Cooper, the classic Mini Cooper that I drove a few months back. But I want to talk about that because 2019 is 60 years of Mini and 2019 is basically over. So I want to make sure we talk about Mini a little bit uh, before the year is done. So let's uh, get started and talk a little bit about Chris Harris. So as you might already know, Chris Harris is probably like one of the most well-respected um, automotive journalists in the world right now. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's done tons of work for tons of different publications, you know, in the UK. And, you know, then he had his own YouTube channel for a while, did some stuff with Drive. Uh, you know, he's on the Drive uh, NBC Sports channel or the NBC Sports show. But most famously now, he is the host, or one of the hosts, of Top Gear. You know, and that's the gold standard of automotive television. So that's huge for him. And when he got that job, it was pretty much huge for every single car enthusiast in the world because everyone pretty much thought that he was the best uh, presenter, automotive presenter. You know, his YouTube videos were always excellent, so when he finally made it to Top Gear, everyone was like, yes, this makes sense. You know, if anyone's going to replace Clarkson and those guys, it's going to be Chris Harris. He's the only one that can really do it. So, you know, he's pretty well-respected, and I don't maybe beloved is a good word. You know, everyone seems to really like Chris Harris. But he made some interesting comments earlier in the week, and everyone knows he is not, just like Clarkson was, he is not shy about speaking his mind. Um... And someone brought up, or I think it was Jack Ricks from Top Gear, brought up the Aston Martin DBX. And that's Aston's new, uh, you know, super high-end luxury SUV. Now, Harris is known for not liking, 
uh, really expensive SUVs or any SUVs of any kind. Um, as a lot of that's a, an opinion shared by a lot of car enthusiasts. That's he's not alone in that at all. Um, and he spoke his mind very, <laughs> uh, very bluntly. And he basically, in a nutshell, spoke about the industry as a whole. Though the DBX was like a, a launching point for him to talk about how the industry is moving towards these super high-end luxury SUVs, or just SUVs in general, you know, even Hyundai has a three-row SUV now. Um, and he claims that it's pointless and it is wrong for the auto industry to do because, well, it's not that it's wrong, they're, they're moving in the wrong direction. And what he claims is that instead of, they're chasing what customers say they want rather than actually leading the way. That automakers are following orders from customers and demands rather than leading, rather than taking us into a new era of the automobile. And he also brought up the point that, you know, this is the worst time in history to sell SUVs. You know, fuel economy regulations are getting stricter and stricter. You know, the planet is getting worse and worse in terms of its climate and pollution and all sorts of air quality. You know, it's just, and SUVs are horrible for that. They're hopelessly inefficient and they're pointlessly inefficient because they're, they're big and they're heavy for no real reason. You know, they barely offer any more space than a big wagon or a minivan. Um, and they, they, they really don't, unless you're off-road, like unless you're genuinely off-road, there is no real advantage to an SUV over like a big wagon or a minivan, but they're far less efficient, they're worse to drive, they're genu generally less comfortable because of their weight. It's harder to make a big heavy car as comfortable as it is to make a lighter car because it's just hard to handle all that weight. So in general, they're worse in basically every single way unless you're seriously off-roading something. Um, so he was kind of talking about how the industry is following this SUV trend rather than leading us into a more interesting, more efficient um, direction. And instead of coming up with new and innovative solutions to our problems, they're not doing anything and they're just pumping out more SUVs. And he gives examples. He gives examples about how the industry could lead bec uh, based on how it used to. You know, he, he brings up cars like the Renault Espace and things like that, cars that, um, you know, had really unique solutions to mobility. You know, cars that could fit loads of people inside with tons of space and be comfortable, but had barely any bigger of a footprint on the road than a regular sedan, were also fuel efficient, and better to drive because they were smaller and lighter. So, it just, he, he gives that example that the car industry can lead. It can show us new ways uh, to get around. It can show us new uh, methods of mobility, and it isn't. Instead, where they're just chasing hopelessly in, uh, inefficient SUVs for sales. And we talked about this a bit on BMW blog. I wrote an article uh, basically about Harris's comments and how I agree with him. And it seems that it's, that is quite polarizing, actually. It seems that a lot of people, a lot of customers, really holding on to their SUVs, especially BMW fans. Um, that was, I think, I think that was the tipping point for a lot of BMW fans reading the article. Um, to send them over the edge to say angry things to me. But uh, I think that was um, the, the fact that I kind of called out some BMW SUVs. And not that BMW, I mean, they're kind of part of the problem because they're among the entire industry, you know, and the whole industry is moving in that incorrect direction, according to Harris. And, you know, that's a point I agree with. But BMW is certainly in that group. I mean, look at things like the X6 and, you know, the X7. 
I mean, just massive, massive SUVs. And I get that BMW makes them because they sell well. And BMW makes them because everyone, everyone else makes them. And to stay competitive, uh, you know, with your customers, you have to make those things. So I understand why BMW is doing that. It's just frustrating that there isn't also the alternative. That we're not seeing, um, you know, new innovative ways to get around. New innovative, innovative ways to make a car. You know, we're not seeing that. We're not seeing innovation. Instead, we're just seeing, uh, we're not seeing BMW or anyone else lead. We're seeing them follow. And that's kind of disappointing. And that was really uh, Harris's point. And it's something I agree with. I also want to point out that BMW hasn't really led in a while. Um, the i3 was probably the last time BMW showed that it could lead. It could come up with innovation. It could, or it could come up with innovative ways to you know, innovative approaches to the automobile. Um, you know, the i3 was a revolutionary car when it came out. It was tiny, you know, compact, carbon fiber structure, uh, rear-wheel drive electric car made, you know, using wind power and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, the interior was made out of, like, recycled material, and it has a funky interior. It, the i3 was genuinely an innovative machine. It was BMW saying, okay, this is going to be the future of mobility. And that's great. I love the i3 for that. I love that BMW made that. That was in 2014. Uh, BMW's done really nothing with it since. The i3 is almost exactly the same as it was then. Just has more battery, uh, you know, more battery density, so it has a little bit more range. But it's not monumental. It's not huge. Uh, the difference in range be uh, now and between now and then, and that's disappointing because BMW has such a great platform with it. It seems like BMW could do so much with the i3, but it, they just aren't, and I don't really don't know, I don't know why. Now, BMW keeps saying, don't worry, it's coming. Cars like the iNext, or whatever that's actually going to be called, um, the i4, they're supposed to be on their way. But we've been hearing that for a while now, so, you know, and I, I'm sure they're coming, I know they're coming, but like, come on, let's... let's Let's get a move on here. We need, you know, the auto industry needs to lead, and that was Harris's point, you know. They need to start coming out with interesting new ways to get around, interesting new means of transportation, and they just aren't. They're just coming out with big, bloated SUVs that make tons and tons of money, but they're not doing enough with the profit that they make off of those uh, to really justify selling gigantic, bloated, inefficient SUVs in a time when gigantic, bloated, inefficient SUVs are really inappropriate. So it's, um, that was his point, and uh, I agree with him, you know, some, I saw some commenters did as well, but a, a lot of others were kind of upset with his remarks, and how dare we uh, criticize the great Bavarians uh, for making anything. You know, BMW does a lot of great things, and there's a lot of great cars they make, but cars like the X6 are just hopelessly um, useless, honestly. I mean, there's no point to having an X6 at all. I get if you need a big SUV for your family or something and you want a BMW, the X5 makes sense, you know. But the X6 is just to say, look at me, I'm different and special, and it's nonsense to me. But, all right, anyway, let's move on from that. And speaking of leading, someone who's always kind of pushed the envelope, someone who's kind of always, you know, shown us a new way, a different way to make a car, specifically a sports car, is Gordon Murray. Now, Gordon Murray is one of the most ingenious people in the entire auto industry. I mean, this man is brilliant. Uh, his designs are brilliant. It's just everything he comes out with is just pure gold. He's just a wonderful, wonderful automotive mind. And 
his most famous car is the McLaren F1. And the McLaren F1 is especially uh, beloved by BMW enthusiasts. I mean, it's beloved by everyone uh, who knows anything about cars. You know, it's widely considered possibly the greatest driving machine ever made. But it's especially loved among BMW enthusiasts because of the fact that it has a BMW engine. You know, the engine was made by Paul Rocha, or who uh, he was like the engine maker for BMW M for a million years, uh, and he designed the the McLaren F1's V12, and it was a masterpiece of an engine, uh, possibly the greatest sounding road car engine in history. Um, so he's really beloved uh, in the BMW community. So his new car, he decided to kind of get back into the mix after years and years and years of being out of the industry, or at least out of making cars directly, and come out with his own car, the T50, the GMA Gordon Murray Automotive T50. Now, I don't know why it's called the T50. Uh, it's kind of a boring name, but whatever. The car seems incredible. I mean, uh, GMA has just released a press release. Um, they haven't shown any pictures of it yet because I don't think it's actually been built yet. So the picture is just like a render of what the back end will look like. And But they've released all the specs. And it is a seriously impressive machine. I mean, it, it has a V12. It's not a BMW V12. So... You know, BMW fans might be disappointed to hear that because there was a lot of speculation before it came out. Like, what kind of engine would it use? Would it use a BMW engine again? Because that would be awesome. It doesn't. It uses a V12 by Cosworth. But anyone who knows anything about cars knows that Cosworth makes some pretty unbelievable engines. So I get the move to use Cosworth, and it's pretty awesome to see it anyway because Cosworth makes awesome stuff. But possibly the most awesome thing about it is the fact that it's a naturally aspirated V12 that revs to 12,000 RPM. Like, that's not a joke. It's the highest revving road car engine in history. 12, well, for a car. Bikes have gone higher. But for a car, it's the highest revving engine in history. 12,000 RPM. Now, uh, I read somewhere that even Gordon Murray claims that it really, it, its peak power is at like somewhere like 9,000. It kind of starts to run out of, out of steam after 9,000. But the last three revs, uh, or just for noise, which is kind of awesome. Basically, he said, uh, you know, the last 3,000 revs are just, you know, you hit a tunnel and just, you know, hear it scream out to 12,000 RPMs uh, with your buddies. You know, that's kind of what he said, which is pretty awesome that that's that he allows it to rev that high just for the noise. That's great. And I'm sure the noise is astonishing. I'm sure it's astonishing at 8,000, 9,000 RPM, but 12,000 is just incredible. I would love to hear what a road car engine sounds like from inside the car at 12,000 RPM. That just has to be amazing. It's also going to have 700 horsepower, which is like a, almost 100 more than the McLaren F1, but it's also only going to weigh like just over 2,000 pounds, like about 2,100 pounds. So think about that. 700 horsepower in a car that weighs less than a Mazda MX-5. I mean, that's crazy. The MX-5 is a blast. and has like 200 horsepower. This has 700 horsepower, and it weighs less than an MX-5. That is just <laughs> remarkable. And I, I can't even imagine what that's like. That has to be just insanity. It also is going to have a manual gearbox, a good old-fashioned six-speed manual gearbox. Now, that's slower. He could have absolutely went with a you know some kind of paddle-shifted gearbox. It would be you know some kind of old-school automated manual or modern dual-clutch or something he could have gone with. But instead, he went with an old-school manual gearbox, uh, and I think it's the right move because, 
you know, Gordon Murray's entire philosophy behind this car is to make it the, the last great driving supercar, the last pure supercar, you know, something that's going to be delicate and precise and about the experience, about the actual experience of driving it, not just crazy numbers. Because supercars have gotten just so insanely fast and competent that you can drive, like anyone can go drive a Ferrari, you know, the newest Ferrari 488 or whatever. You know, you can drive that really quickly, pretty easily. You know, it doesn't take a great driver to really push modern supercars because they're just so capable and they're so fast and their, their limits are just so high that they don't really engage you anymore. It's like playing a video game. So he wants to bring that back to the supercar world, that, that feeling of, you know, really, really driving a properly special machine. Uh, something with, you know, delicate handling and proper steering and something you have to really work at. It's going to be slower than some of these crazy hypercar, supercar things, but it's it's going to be more enjoyable to drive. That, that I think, is important. Um, you know, think about that. 700 horsepower V12, mid-engine V12 with a six-speed manual gearbox, a rear-wheel drive, by the way, and about 2,100 pounds. That is insane. That is, in this day and age, that's remarkable. So I, I can't wait to see what that is. Oh, and it has a fan. It has a gigantic fan on it. Um, the fan is kind of positioned like, in the picture, there's a fan at the back of the car, and it, it kind of like sucks air out or something. It was it was a complicated aerodynamic explanation, and the idea was basically that at a certain point, air doesn't travel through the, the diffuser well. It's kind of like uh, you could have the biggest diffuser or most incredible diffuser in the world, but at a certain speed, the air just doesn't go through it properly. Um, so it like creates drag somehow. So if you pull that a lot of the air out of there, uh, it goes through the diffuser better, and it creates just a slipperier car, and it makes the car faster. You get better downforce, and it just makes it uh, just a little bit more aerodynamic, and it really works apparently because he used it in a, a F1 car back ages ago, um, and it was pretty famous then. And this is the first time it's ever being used. First time the application is ever being used on a road car. And it's pretty cool. It uses like a 48-volt electrical system to power the fan. Um, and it's it's a really fascinating fascinating design. And this is the kind of stuff Gordon Murray comes up with because he's, you know, a genius. So that's going to be really cool. It's, you know, 700 horsepower, V12, manual, 2,100 pounds, and a giant fan. <laughs> that's pretty cool. And the price is in the millions. It's, you know, seven-figure car. So it's going to be only for... You know the 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 uber rich, and it's already. I think every model's already accounted for. I think he's sold already every single one that, that they're going to build. So um, if you want one, I think it's a little too late. And you know, our hopes of ever driving one are pretty much squashed. Because <laughs> unless we come up with an owner that's going to let us drive, you know, a two million dollar car, we're not driving it. So it doesn't look like it doesn't look good anytime soon. But still, we're going to be keeping a close eye on it because, you know, as BMW fans, we have a soft spot for Gordon Murray. You know, he has good ties to the BMW brand, and a lot of BMW fans just really idolize him for what he did with the McLaren F1. So I think just, and even as car enthusiasts in general, you don't have to be a BMW fan to love uh, Gordon Murray's work. Um, so the, the entire industry is going to be watching it closely, as will we, and I think as will all of our listeners and fans. So it's just such an awesome car. If you haven't seen it yet, you got to go check it out. Read the specs. Find any videos or interviews you can find uh, with Gordon Murray. He's a fascinating dude. Uh, really interesting to hear. Really interesting to listen to his take on sports cars. And just really, really cool guy. Speaking of, uh, you know, pure cars and British cars, 
um, I want to talk a little bit about Mini. So this is the 60, 60th anniversary of Mini, and um, Mini's been celebrating that quite a bit throughout the year, but it was also a bit of a celebration for Mini for me, personally, and it's something I want to talk about because uh, I got to drive a classic Mini Cooper in, uh, in August back during Monterey Car Week. BMW was kind enough to fly me out to Monterey uh, to enjoy the Monterey Car Car Week and see Pebble Beach. You know, go to Pebble Beach. I've never been to the Pebble Beach Concord before, and that was unbelievable. I got to go to the Quail and see all the crazy, insane millions of hypercars that were there and all the hilariously overly rich people <laughs> in their ridiculous clothing and their silly hats, and uh, I felt wildly out of place, but it was just remarkable to see. I got so, I mean... The cars I saw were just astonishing. Uh, some cars I've never even imagined seeing before uh, in my life in person, and I would see like 10 of them. Like, I've never seen a McLaren F1 in person before, and there were literally like eight in a row just sitting next to each other. Perfect mint condition McLaren F1s. Another car that's been like an automotive hero of mine is the uh, Bugatti EB110. I love that car. I've always thought it was one of the coolest cars ever made. Never seen one in person, never thought I would see one in person. Again, like five, just in a little group. And it was just awesome to see. I saw Christian von Koenigsegg, like just some really, really crazy stuff. So that was a real treat. And I really, really enjoyed that a lot. However, possibly the highlight of that trip was driving a 1965, uh, I believe it was a Morris Mini Cooper S. And I got to drive that um, through Big Sur and over the Bigsby Creek Bridge. And it was just, the roads are incredible out there. And the car was even better. Now, I had never driven a car that old before. I had never driven anything, like any old classic Mini. I, it was a very, very new experience to me. I've never been into in Monterey before, so the whole thing was a very new experience to me. So maybe all of that kind of combined to make a really, really memorable experience. But I really think that that car, it was mostly the car. I really do think so. Um, it left such a mark on me. And there's so many reasons why. So let me just give you a brief rundown of how this trip went down. So the day before, um, actually it was two days before the Pebble Beach Concourse, but one day before the Quail, which was like the crazy event, um, BMW had a little bit of a press conference um, on the lawn at the Pebble Beach uh, you know, resort. And part of that press conference and part of that little, you know, display was for Mini. It was for the 60th anniversary of Mini. They had the Mini GP concept there. Um, actually, it wasn't a concept. It was a camouflaged version of the real Mini GP. Uh, and they had four classic Minis. Now, two of them were quite old. One of them was right-hand drive. But one was this really old, like I said, the 65 Mini Cooper S. And it was red with black interior and that was the car that I ended up because we were going to drive all the minis down uh, through Big Sur and you know stop for lunch and then drive them back and I didn't really know which one I was going to take like I said I've never driven something that old before so I was a little nervous I was like ah, I've never driven an old manual before am I going to stall it out do it you know does how the synchros work are they different am I going to you know mess it up so I was really nervous about driving it to be completely honest and they were also I mean these are really old collector's cars like bmw takes really good care of these cars i was really nervous about damaging anything or messing anything up i was i was i really was apprehensive about actually driving them 
thankfully, my driving partner was Satch Carlson. So a lot of our BMW readers might be familiar with Satch. Uh, he's been a writer for the BMW CCA and Roundel Magazine for ever. I mean, he's been there for a long time, and he's very, very highly respected, you know, among the BMW enthusiast community. And Satch is one of those guys who's driven, you know, tons of different stuff. He's had some really amazing experiences in cars. He's raced a lot of cars. He knows a lot. He has a story for everything. You know, he's just one of those guys that has so much experience and wisdom. So it was really good to have him as my driving partner. And I let him drive first because I figured, let me watch what Satch does with the car. And then, you know, that's how I'll drive it. Just so I know how, what I'm doing. I have a bit of an idea of what it's like to drive before I actually get behind the wheel. So I was the passenger for a while. And that was good because <laughs> for me, because it let Satch be the guinea pig on a, on a car that maybe its brakes weren't perfect. <laughs> um, so a couple of maybe emergent, let's say emergency stops where people in Monterey were kind of driving like weirdos because of the million dollar cars driving past every two seconds people were not paying attention and slamming on the brakes a lot so he had to come to an emergency stop and we found out that it pulls really hard to the left <laughs> when under heavy braking and that uh you know its brakes weren't the best so we learned that really quickly and i'm glad i wasn't the guinea pig on that one so sorry Satch, but uh i'm glad i was in the passenger seat um but then we stopped off for lunch and that was really great and then it was my turn to drive so I was especially nervous because when Satch pulled into the parking spot at the place we had had lunch, um, it was he pulled in forward, like facing forward, downhill, like facing downhill. So that means I had to reverse uphill, and there were cars parked next to me, so I couldn't see if any cars were coming. And where like the restaurant where we ate was like right on the main road. So as you reversed out, you were basically like right into traffic. So I was, I had to, again, uphill reverse in a car I'd never driven before, um, without blindly, basically into traffic. And I was about an inch from the curb. So I had to make sure the car didn't roll forward, you know, and <laughs> damage or scratch the rare car that BMW owns and has been collecting for a long time. Um, so I was a little nervous that I roll forward. Thankfully, Satch decided he'd say, oh, let's, I'll hold the e-brake for you and work the e-brake so you can kind of focus on backing out and not having us get hit by traffic. Um, and so we don't roll forward. Turns out the e-brake didn't work. So that really wasn't helpful. However, um, it turns out that classic mini clutches are incredibly easy to use. And I just zipped right out of the spot, no problem, without even inching forward. Um, and... As soon as that happened, I had to, I was like, wow, that was, the clutch is like lovely on this car. And the, the throttle response was razor sharp. It was like something I didn't expect. I mean, like, I guess just old school throttle response. You know, I'm not, maybe I'm not used to it anymore from driving so many modern cars with electronic throttles. Um, you know, that, that old school mechanical cable driven throttle, it was just razor sharp. So it was super easy to back out. And then I had to make like a big U-turn in the middle of the road, like kind of just swing around in the middle of the road because I was following um, another Mini who had already kind of started going before we left. So that was kind of annoying. But then I had to follow him and thankfully there was no traffic. But I remember being like, all right, this car has no power steering. Um, you know, it might be a little tricky, you know, at like no speed. But again, everything, because the car is so light, it's just, it just zipped right around. It has such a massive diameter steering wheel. That was one thing that Satch was saying. 
uh, he was teaching me while he was driving is that because the steering wheel is so wide, like the diameter is so huge, um, it just makes it easier to, to really whip around. Um, and the car I had, I mean, the, the actual steering wheel itself, like the rim of the wheel was like pencil thin. So even though it was a huge diameter, it was like a big, huge circular piece of spaghetti. It was like super skinny. And for, it was just a lovely little steering wheel and it made it so easy to just whip that thing around. But once I was on the move, it was just, I just fell in love with that car, like almost immediately. I remember saying, I remember turning to Satch in the passenger seat and being like, dude, this is like a sweetheart. I love this little car. It was just amazing to drive. It really, I fell in love with it. It really just kind of, it completely captivated me. I just, I couldn't get enough of it. Um, there was so much about it that I loved too, like every aspect of it. I mean, let's start with the steering. So like I said, the steering wheel is huge diameter, but a skinny actual rim. And it's a bit of a slow steering rack, you know, it requires quite a bit of like steering lock to make anything happen. But because you're getting, there's it's no power assist at all. I mean, there's there's no power assist steering at all. So because of that, you're getting every ounce of feedback of what the front tires are doing through the steering wheel. Like it just felt telepathic. Like you could just understand exactly what the car is doing. It was like the steering wheel was wired to your brain. And I know that's a kind of an old automotive cliche you know, it has like steering is like what's wired to your brain, but it felt true. Like it was just, I turned to Satch, one thing I said was I felt like it was driving in high resolution. You know, every detail was coming straight through the wheel into my fingertips. And that's how you drove it. You kind of like drive it with your fingertips. And it was just such a delicate, agile little car. And you have so much feel and feedback through the wheel. You know exactly what the car is doing. You feel so confident where you can place it. It was just, I was so nervous going into it. Once I started driving, I realized all that nervousness was nonsense. It was silly because the car's such a little sweetheart to drive. It was just lovely. And the, like I said, the throttle response was excellent. Um, the engine sounded great. You know, it was slow as all hell. I mean, 060 was probably like 11 seconds or something. Very slow car, but it didn't matter. It felt quick. You know, the sensation of speed was there. You have all the noise because there's very little sound deadening in the car. Um, you know, it's such a small little light car that everything you do feels responsive. So you don't feel like you're going slow, even though you really are going very quickly. Um, if, you know, 30 miles an hour feels fantastic. It feels so fun all of the time. Um, you know, it just felt great. The brakes were a little dodgy, but that was just down to the fact that it was an old car and probably could use new brakes. But aside from that, oh man, what a lovely little car to drive. And the suspension, uh, old minis use like this weird rubber cone suspension. And it's very uncomfortable. I mean, you hit a pothole and it feels like you've been in a car accident. It's just, <laughs> it's brutally stiff. But there's something very fun about it. Um, I honestly, if I owned one, would probably replace the suspension with something more modern. But, um, like, I've seen people convert, convert it to, like, coilovers and stuff. But uh, even on its really brutally rough suspension, it was still very fun. Um, and, it, you know, like I said, it's just so agile. And another thing is it's, like, square. Like... The wheels are pushed so far out to each corner of the car, and that was done intentionally. You know, Sir Alec Isagonis, he designed this car to have as much interior space as possible, so he wanted the wheelbase to be as long as possible in such a small car, and the wheel track to be as wide as possible to fit as much stuff inside. And he achieved that, and it's a brilliant piece of packaging. You know, I mean, he was a genius. He was, he's been considered such for since it came out. The car is an incredible automotive design and because it's square basically i mean i don't know if it's actually square but probably not but it, it seems it because of how far out the wheels are stretched to the corners of the car 
it has so much mechanical grip. I mean, you can corner at crazy high speeds. It's remarkable how hard you can put that thing through a corner, and it just does not give up. It just does not stop clawing into the road. Just a wonderful little car. So you can carry so much speed. So it's actually quite fast through corners because you do very little braking. Um, and it was just what a lovely car. Downshifting, you know, rev matching was so easy because of how sharp the throttle response was. You know, just oh, I just fell in love with that car, and I've been I've been searching online for one that I can afford. Um, it it's probably completely irrational to spend my money on one right now, but oh my, I can't get out of my head. I need a classic mini, and I don't want one. I know they kept the body style basically the same uh, up until the I think two thousand was the last one. I mean, they really kept making them basically the same car for ages. But I don't want a newer one. I want an older one. I want like a sixties cooper and i want a cooper s because it has a little bit more power and it's a little bit sportier and it looks a little bit cooler i want a 60s cooper s like in the worst way and i know i want that over the newer one because you can get cheap the newer ones were cheaper uh considerably cheaper but i don't want one because we actually drove one there we had to drive the classic the 65 i drove to like a halfway point and then i swapped cars we did a car swap with another journalist and i got into one i think it was from 1999 and it was just not nearly as good. And admittedly, it wasn't in as good of shape. Um, the brakes were in really bad shape. They didn't work really well. Um, and it, it just kind of the steering felt, I don't know if there was something wrong with the front end, but the steering felt really, really vague, which was odd because the 65 I drove, I mean, it was like I, it, it was like my fingers were running across the road. I could tell you what brand of paint they used to paint the, the road markers. Like it was unbelievable how much feedback I got through the wheel. Then I jumped into the 99, and I had, like, no steering feel at all. Uh, and another thing was it had a much smaller diameter steering wheel, like, almost comically small, but the rim of it was very thick, so it was, like, the exact opposite of the steering wheel in the 65, and I didn't like it at all. This made the steering effort much, much more difficult, because, again, no power steering, but a much smaller diameter wheel. That was one of the things Satch was teaching me about that. Much smaller diameter wheel uh, made it much more difficult to steer. And... You know, it just wasn't as good of a car. It just didn't felt. It just didn't feel as good. Um, it didn't give me that same joy, that same feedback. Another thing, they tried to add a lot of modern luxuries to the interior. So, like the door panels had wind-up windows, and um, you know there was like a heater, and the dashboard was you know much thicker and stuck out into the cabin more at a glove box, and that all kind of took away from the experience of a classic Mini. Like the '65, I drove the interior was completely. Barren. I mean, it was the most Spartan interior I've ever seen in my life. There were barely any even windows in the car. I mean, like, or, or movable windows. And instead of having, like, wind-up windows or roll-up windows, they were, like, little sliding jobs. It was, like, these little windows would slide forward and backward to give you some air. But because of that, there was no window track in the door, and the door panel could be much skinnier. And if the door panel was skinnier, that meant more, like, another inch or so of elbow room on either side, so it actually added to a lot of interior space. And then they took that same space down low, down low in the door panel, and created a big door pocket. So where there would have been a, a door panel with like a window um, window track, uh, they replaced that with a big door pocket. So you could put stuff in there. Like a woman could put a bag in there or, you know, you could put anything you want in there. It was fantastic space. And then in the front, um, there was like the dashboard was like kind of like, it like curved inward and had like little, little cubby spaces. There was no glove box to speak of but you know who cares really there was like nice usable space but it made the cabin feel so airy it made the cabin feel so like just wonderfully 
calm. It was just, I don't know, there was something about it. There's a massive greenhouse, you know, the tall windows, and it was just lovely to be in. I really, really enjoyed it a lot, but then you jump in the 99 with all the, they tried to add, like, modern amenities, and it felt claustrophobic. You know, it felt mini at that point. Um, it felt really small, and I didn't like that at all. So I don't want the newer one. I want the old one. I want the most Spartan one I can find, the most Spartan Mini Cooper S I can find. I just fell in love with that thing. So yeah, this marks 60 years of me, and I think that driving that car, you know, on the 60th anniversary of the brand really shows off what the brand is about, and what's kind of disappointing, and it's not really Mini's fault, because it's just the way modern cars are, uh, it's not BMW's fault either, because BMW, you know, basically makes Mini at this point, but I jumped from that classic car, and then the very next day, I got right into um, the current, the brand new Mini Cooper, the 60th anniversary edition, and it felt like I was driving a school bus. It was enormous by comparison, um, and it feels like, you know, like I felt like I was in a bunker, too, because of how high the door sill is, you know, how short the window, the windows are, you know, the, the, the eight pillars, everything, they're so much thicker, and everything just felt very, very claustrophobic. The car felt much, much bigger, more difficult to place on the road, obviously, and it just, it was crazy. And I know that's not Mini's fault, you know, there's nothing they can do about that, you know, with modern safety regulations and pedestrian crash regulations and rollover ratings and all this sort of stuff it has to be that thick and chunky it just it just has to be there's no way we're getting around that um so i'm not blaming mini or i'm not saying that the new one is bad because of that but by comparison it's just wild to see you know how far things have have come and how how much things have changed since the the days of the original mini and it made me really appreciate what driving what real driving is about because i swear i would much rather drive that classic mini with like i think it barely had 100 horsepower i would take that any day of the week over a modern like bmw m8 or anything like that because in modern performance cars you're not really doing the driving you're really just hanging on for the ride the car is so much more capable than any of us are like unless you're a pro driver the limits of that car are so much higher than your limits, than my limits. Like, I I know it when I drive a modern car. Like, there's nothing I could do. Like, I'd have to be an absolute idiot to get one of these cars out of sorts because they're just so much better than I am at driving. And, like, that kind of takes the fun away because you're not driving it anymore. You know, you're just doing what it's allowing you to do. And it's not, like, I don't know, there's just something about driving such an old machine that requires you to do absolutely everything for it. Um, and it re- it's so rewarding, and it's just... There's such a connection between man and machine. It's just wonderful. I just, I fell in love with that car and it reminded me of what Mini is about. And I think Mini does a pretty good job of, you know, kind of keeping that same uh, ideology, that same philosophy. But man, driving that old car really taught me what Mini is about. It really taught me what driving is about. And I absolutely need one in my life. I need one that every Sunday I can go out after a cup of coffee or with a cup of coffee and say, all right, I'm going to go take a drive, you know, nowhere to go all day to get there, just go, just drive, I, I need that, I need a classic Mini in my life, because it's, what a wonderful experience, and if you haven't driven a vintage Mini, a classic Mini, I, I highly recommend it, I, I urge you, go out and find one to drive, because it will be one of the better driving experiences of your life, if you haven't done it yet, it is, I, I just, you have to drive an old one, I mean, it has to be really old, you know, one of the early 60s models, uh, it has to be, and I suggest a Cooper S or something with a little more power, um, and by a little more power, I mean like it has like a hundred horsepower, <laughs> so, you know, drive one of those, it's just wonderful, I mean, 
oh, I, I, there's, I can't come up with any more superlatives. It's just a, an incredible experience. One side note, I do want to talk about the, the transmission wasn't brilliant, I will say. Four-speed manual, the actual throws, it seemed like I couldn't find any gear. It seemed like they went in different, like the wrong directions. It was a bit sloppy, but once I got used to it, it was fine. But what a fun car, man. Ah, oh, I just, I think about it all the time and how I just want another one. I want another go in it, and I just, I can't wait to get back into another Mini, the vintage Mini. And I will own one. I will do it. So yeah, 60 years of Mini, and I got to drive one from the 60s, and that's pretty cool. And I, it was probably the highlight of my year, my automotive-wise. Oh, man. But yeah, so that was kind of how, how I wanted to wrap up our 10th episode, something a little special like that, you know, talking about the Mini, because I'm getting oh, all the feels again talking about it. So so yeah, that was um, you know that was the highlight of my year, and I think a good way to, to end our 10th episode um, you know, we're heading toward the end of 2019, a lot of crazy stuff coming up in 2020. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope the podcast grows. I hope you guys like it. And I hope we, uh, we can really get some more interesting guests on, you know, we have people that we're talking to that are interested about coming on. We just have to work out scheduling and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of good stuff coming up. You know, the first 10 episodes I think have been successful you know I, I don't know i don't think we went into it with any expectations so it's not like it met or didn't meet our expectations i think we're kind of just seeing how it goes and i think it's going pretty well so far you know i really I'm, I'm enjoying it i think you guys are enjoying it so i'm really happy with how the first 10 episodes have gone and you know i can't wait to do more so yeah that's it for episode 10 please stay tuned for the next one and i uh, hope you enjoyed it